Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Heckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Marie Monmonquet. She is managing partner at MD Numbers. And we're going to talk to her about the work she does in cannabis, her long history in cannabis. She's involved in many different businesses, many different facets. And I'm really excited to talk to someone who is in various parts of the market and is looking both in California and nationally and really kind of seeing what's going on in the cannabis space uh, and what are the challenges we have, what are the things we really need to focus on. Obviously, there's there's a lot of challenges in growing industry, but cannabis has some really particular ones. So I'm excited to kind of hear her take and uh, hear what some of these things are. With that, Marie, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Bruce. Really excited yes. to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So before we get into everything that's going on today and all the businesses you're running and really give us a little of the background. What I mean, professionally, how did things play out? How did cannabis come into the scene? Give us a little of the backstory. Yeah, super unexpectedly. I'm from Nashville originally and graduated with a political science and psychology degree, wanted to go to law school and just mm-hmm. somehow found my way into California right after I graduated and had a lot of experience in cannabis brokering and, you know, just understanding the medical benefits throughout college. And when I got to California, I just wanted to figure out how to break into the compliant 
seen, so to speak. So I did a lot of research, worked for a brand, and then immediately launched a delivery service in Redwood City, the same city that I just applied for retail at, um, ironically. But so um, that was in 2015. We went into our first compliant Prop 215 delivery service. And then from there, we built out our farm, which is 50,000 square feet of cultivation, processing, wholesale facility in Salinas. And then our uh, distribution company and consulting company kind of just naturally followed once we built out all that expertise. Yeah, I'm sure. Why was delivery the first domino in in your uh, series of businesses here? I think for me, it was... I noticed a problem and I had received, let's say, about 15 deliveries from Redwood City Delivery Services back then. And Mm -hmm. I was only willing to call back one or two. So I just noticed a really big void in that area because, once again, it's a dry county um, for retail. So Mm -hmm. I had a friend that had a variety of really high grade different strains and high quality. He was just growing a lot of really good indoor flower with a lot of different varietals. So I just decided I should make my own delivery service since I was so disappointed with the deliveries I was getting. But I originally worked for this herbal supplement which was a capsule company, and this was 2014, 2015, and I realized how hard it was to only sell one item to storefronts. So I was like, if I don't do delivery, then I'll figure out how to get together like a rep group and come in with a a catalog of items. So I've always just been interested in like sales, and delivery was also just considering like the capital intensive nature yeah. of cannabis delivery for sure is one of the easiest things for you know a smaller business smaller entrepreneur to launch in comparison to like our cultivation you know we had to raise yeah, exactly. a lot more money for or distribution you need a lot more real estate and those things so delivery for me it was like the right way for me to get started because i i was only starting with like $20,000 or something so mm-hmm. it was very it was like the well, one of the only ways I could really get started was delivery with my current like capital. Yeah, yeah. And what I guess as you built a delivery business, what insight did it give you about the the industry overall, or maybe where the next opportunities were going to be? I'm, I'm always curious what people learn when they actually enter a market like this. You know, it's crazy because I never thought I would have to learn all of the little pieces of, you know, marketing, branding, yeah. technology, how we link our credit cards and integrate our weed maps and integrate our logistics systems. And then being in San Francisco, you know, there's like a joke, you can make it, you know, they say that about a lot of cities, but if you can make it in San Francisco, <laughs> you can make it anywhere, especially when it's coming to logistical nightmares, getting through a city yeah. that's so dangerous and so traffic laden and just all of the natures of the business come out it's a beast um so i really 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 appreciated starting in delivery because i got to learn every little piece like i know so much about technology and integrations because of the e-commerce aspect of it so you have to be customer facing digitally but customer facing as well as like inbound calls so you 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 piece together a lot of things that you would still have to do if you had a retail other than seeing customers you know face to face physically mm-hmm. in that building but for me i really appreciated it because i was able to like excel further when it came to cultivation because we understood what customers really wanted and what strains were popular what price points were popular and like yeah. the needs of the marketplace and then it really 
helps for distribution because of the logistics elements and understanding driver training, understanding all the logistical compliance natures of the business, which of course is extremely complicated. And then for me as a buyer, you know, the the business of delivery is so involved with every single other piece of the supply chain. And you really, really get to learn almost a little bit about every piece, right? Because mm-hmm. you learn about lab testing, even though you're not lab testing. You learn about distribution. You learn about processing. You're looking at, you know, bud structure. You're understanding what price points are going to do well in your retail. But a lot of those things I learned, my brother and I really learned from starting with delivery. And it's interesting because a lot of people start with cultivation, which I would say is a little bit smarter. <laughs> mm. if, you, if you already have the, you know, the supply at some point. But... For us, it was a lot better to kind of reverse engineer it because we really learned like what customers wanted, how customers purchased. And we didn't. One thing about cultivators, you know, they have a very strong opinion about their cannabis. Really? Oh, man. I never noticed that. Never, you know, I've never met a cultivator that didn't tell me they didn't grow the best weed. So with (laughs) us coming not from cultivation, we don't have that that nature. We're very humble. We just always want to learn, learn, learn more and grow better and better weed. So as long as we're just, we're able to have that reversed focus, which has worked really well for us. And then once we reverse engineered from gaining customers first and then growing for those customers and then growing for other customers and other distributors, it's just kind of grown from there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I guess where did you go next in the kind of the, the series of businesses and, and, and I guess why did you make those decisions and, and how did that play out operationally? Yeah, so we've definitely dictated 100% of our decisions by the state of California's transition from Prop 215 into Prop 64. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I kind of describe it as timing has been the most important factor for my brother and I. Uh, mm-hmm. We got started pretty much at the nick of time in 2015 to go ahead and roll out the delivery licenses and get a lot of the understandings and connections under our belt to have 2015, 2016, and 2017 in Prop 215. And 2017, we were just so concerned about being able to transition into a legal permit because we were in a dry county again. So the the city that we had operated in originally forever was not going to permit. So that was a really big issue for us. And I spent just like, it was funny. It was like 2017, I really wanted to be running the business a lot more, but we were really focused on like getting more more money for the farm because the farm has always been like a interesting learning process for us. And trying to stay compliant. So 2017 was really just a rush for me to try and find a group that I could piggyback my license or my business onto their license to continue to operate compliantly in starting January 1, 2018. So Mm -hmm. we did that. We secured a group that we did a partnership with in the interim to become legal and stay legal. But a lot of groups, you know, you could potentially operate in that gray area all of 2018 but what Mm -hmm. happened in california was your product supply got cut off so if you were purchasing from you know kiva or absolute extracts or one of these large distribution companies 
the January one they would not sell to you. And yeah. my brother and I have just always had like this unbelievable take that, you know, we're not from California. We're from a place that this is still completely illegal. And if they give us the chance to do it legally, we want to do it legally. So yeah. We, yeah. we were willing to make every sacrifice that we could to try and make sure that we kept uh, Marie's deliverables legal in that 2017 to 2018 transition time. Yeah. But it was crazy. I wish that I could say like it, we were focusing on all these other things. But in reality, we were really just trying to find someone to partner with to stay legal and trying to like keep our farm above <laughs> ground at the time and just head down throughout yeah. that. Yeah. One of my rules is when you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> just, just press through. Oh, yeah. Um, I love that one. It's good. So then where did things go from there? I mean, obviously, you're doing you're, you're involved in m- many different facets of cannabis these days. How, how did this unfold? Yeah. So we've been going in a rapid speed almost from our transition in 2017. So we opened up a new delivery service called um, Cannabis Express. That's the permit that was offered to my brother and I. Mm-hmm. And... We launched that business. We took it from like 10 deliveries to about 150 deliveries in less than a year. And then we launched an Orange County office. We launched a Chatsworth office down in Southern California. We built out a Sacramento delivery office from scratch, like in a building that was just completely hollow. And we slowly opened up those scenarios. Then we branched out more into focusing on cultivation and vertical integration. So once the delivery was kind of running itself, my brother and I have just, we call it it divide and conquer, but he's really focused on the wholesale facility and the farm. And I'm really focused on distribution and advocacy and more of the retail side of life. Got it. Yeah. So we kind of just divide and conquer. And then it, I kind of say, like, we, we think big, but we, we try to keep everything really small. Um, we don't, like, we don't over overcapitalize a particular project, you know, if we don't see the profit. I think that's one thing about us coming from, you know, the old school cannabis ways of thinking. We think very, very streamlined, very bootstrap, very profitability oriented versus, you know, we try to not go raise money. Um, That's like a goal of my brother and I. One thing we're super proud of is that we've been able to own Marie's Deliverables and MD Farms 100% just ourselves. So we've gone through all sorts of fundraising and all sorts of tragedies and all sorts of hell and uh, been able to just make sure that we don't have to answer to anyone on our farm. So it's, that's, that's been extremely, extremely, extremely just inspiring for just my life to be able yeah. to maintain, you know, to staying small and being able to be a small business, but still can't like be able to capitalize on some really large revenue and some really large networking. So right now the farm expansions are, are going crazy. It's uh, we've got three facilities down in Salinas that we are starting our build out. We've pulled building licenses, have some new cannabis licenses down there for or indoor. So mm-hmm. our like to your question about like where things go, cultivation is absolutely the most profitable place for nearly everyone to be in once you can yeah. dial in your efficiencies. Um, mm-hmm. And like I said, we didn't overspend. We try to really stay super efficient and a little bit too hands-on maybe even on the farm, but that you can tell the plants are really high quality because of that hands-on nature. We're not trying to produce the Bud Light. (laughs) So uh, the farm expansions are really, really just 
natural evolutions of us going down there, meeting a lot of people, a lot of people coming into our facility, and we have a really good track record down there. So Uh we're granted a lot of real estate opportunities that maybe others wouldn't be granted just because of our our ability to pay. Yeah, we have a good reputation for paying our bills. And the next step there just kind of naturally evolved in the ability to get some requests for proposals out of the state of California for cultivation. For me on the delivery side, once those were up running itself, I was kind of like, okay, what do I want to do next? And I kind of looked around and the one thing that kind of gave me like a really, I think corporate cannabis can be really soulless. Well, I mean, all <laughs> capitalistic, you know, was, we ran super capitalistic, super fast. So yeah. it wasn't really like a time for evolution. It was just like, oh, we're going to make money and take this product and commoditize it so drastically. But we don't necessarily look at you know, all of our labor yeah. as a commodity, we're able to have a little bit better business values than than most. And that, uh, that's what I was going to say. So when I kind of looked around at my like corporate cannabis, it didn't really make me feel great. So I found success centers. I was working on our equity report. Every city, uh-huh. every retailer in San Francisco has to have an equity report that says like you're hiring locally, you're hiring people that have been affected by the war on drugs, all those uh-huh. good things that are really like the point of the program. And I met Angela White, who is like this super amazing lady who's just like dripping in the fact that all she wants to do is help you and like want nothing from you. And like she's just been taking the equity applicants in San Francisco and like giving them more advantages than most. And it's crazy because they're not even funded to do so because they are a city program and they receive federal money. So they don't take in any public they're all privately funded for their cannabis endeavors. And it's just, it's super, super inspiring to be around, which was what I was looking for because corporate cannabis was like the least inspiring thing so fast. Like 2019, I was just like, woo. For me, the natural evolution was then to like run towards, you know, the things that made me feel good and weren't necessarily the best for my wallet, which is okay at this point because of all these other businesses making the money. And I feel good being able to support the equity community, especially because a lot of them, like I can relate to the majority of these people, been arrested for cannabis before in Nashville, Mm -hmm. could have had a completely different life very lucky and just fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. And I recognize that. So being able to just give back to all the people that have been affected by the war on drugs or want to transition from the legacy market into the compliant market um, and just building with those groups of people are, it's just been very valuable for me as opposed to those that are just running into cannabis to see. Yeah. What Make the uh, money. question one? What is weed? Question two: <laughs> <laughs> How do you make money with weed? <laughs> like I've I've know so many. So, of and those sometimes groups. sometimes it's not in that order, <laughs> right? <laughs> Literally, yeah. uh, they say weed is something you can make money on, but the crazy part, Bruce, is like when you run the numbers, it's actually not. And yeah. you and like a lot of companies, I just explained it like twenty. 17, we were all making a lot of money. You know, we were self-regulated in California. We actually had stiffer regulations in a lot of ways than we do now in California. But it just evolved into this this very tax-laden place, of course, where we have 280E and all the other things. But in 2017, you know, we we're all making money. Twenty By the end of 2017, if you had not raised money, if you weren't in debt, 
then you probably weren't going to be able to stay open, which is, you yeah. know, an oxymoron of like, well, what and, the average and why person is that? Because I'm, I'm curious, given, given the fact that you've chosen to, you know, complete, uh, uh, retain all of your equity, do you feel like at some level that that's put you at a disadvantage or where do you see the advantage of being the other side of it, companies that have raised significant equity and, and debt, debt capital? We prefer hard cash. Um, so we definitely still have, you know, a extreme need to raise capital from time to time, but we're mm-hmm. just unwilling to give up equity in the business in exchange for that. We definitely do a high rate of interest. Uh-huh. On, so taking on debt. Yeah. 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 We'll definitely take on the debt, but we just, my brother and I've seen a lot of large and small companies partner with the wrong group very easily. Mm-hmm. And you know, these people that it's like an interview. I mean, it's like a resume. They always, the, the resume is the best you're ever going to get of these people. right? <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, the cannabis is all about a resume and half the stuff on there, they're really not actually effectively doing and doing the due diligence on that can be very difficult to prove a lot of these elements, right? It's a lot of smoke yeah. and mirrors. Um, yeah. So for me, partnerships are like a marriage. And a lot mm-hmm. of times in cannabis, like like my consulting distribution company, I do work with two other women on that business. And I've known them. I knew them for years before we started this business together. They worked for Dosis. They worked for Bloom Farms. They worked for Northern yeah. Emeralds. They have extensive sales and marketing experience and all the things that I like. And I knew that we would work well together because we're not greedy people. We're almost a little bit too fair. So because of that same nature, I know that you know this opportunity will go well so it's both right like if we were able to partner with you know a multi-state operator and come in and fund us and just extremely speed up a lot of our expansion opportunities that would be fabulous in some ways but we've also seen deals where we've had our farm for instance is a perfect example of like ways that different contracts have been presented to us that say hey all right we'll give you x amount of funding And for that funding, we want X amount of guaranteed product. But if you don't meet these product parameters, then our equity grows. So it's almost like, well, we didn't come from cultivation, you know, so there's Mm -hmm. no way we would be willing to do that because we might have a failed cultivate, like a a failed harvest. And we're not willing to give up everything we fought for for a failed harvest, right? And another, like, just with the corporate guys, it seems, you know, naturally... A lot of the people that historically have sold cannabis, you know the good guys from the bad guys because of the integrity factor and how mm-hmm. important it is. When you know cannabis transitioned into Prop 64, all that went out the window. And a lot of people like me that thought you know a contract meant some sort of integrity went with it were completely wrong. So mm-hmm. if I can't trust the contract <laughs> and I can't trust you because I just met you and I know why you're here, and dead mm-hmm. equity is something that I really, really hate. So if you have no operations expertise, you don't bring me any marketing or branding expertise, you're not an ongoing investor that's going to continue to help expand in various ways, then for me, I, I would much rather have that cold, hard cash. And the yeah. the other thing about the advantage of my brother and I is it allows him and I to make dumb decisions and they're a lot easier. Like yeah. if we like Redwood City is a perfect example. Like it's not a dumb thing that we apply. That's where we're from. That's where we're based. We have a ton of customers there. Extreme support, and we're like the local guy. But if we had 
other partners or larger partners that were very, very scrutinizing every dollar that came into the business as far as reinvestment, they might not have let me reinvest in that opportunity because it cost $25,000 for the application fee. We had a $50,000 non-refundable deposit to the landlord. We spent another $25,000 on the attorney and we will have to pay him a little bit more money if we are granted the application. So to just throw away, you know, it's all—it's like you're, you're gambling a lot of times in cannabis and it's so expensive to gamble with this real estate and the time that it takes to sit on this real estate before you find out things. If him and I had just one more partner, you know, and that partner did not want that money to be reinvested in that nature, it could definitely be an issue. And the beautiful part about me and my brother, if he wants to, you know, if he sees a potential opportunity and we can afford it, then we go for it. Yeah. And we're young. Yeah, because you you can control it. Yeah. Like, we have no kids. We're we're still pretty young. Like, we're both 33. Mm -hmm. So, we're definitely risk takers. And we are, like, symbiotic to one another, right? Like, Yeah. The we we are very very complimentary in those aspects. So even though you know he tells me no and I tell him no, which is great, um, and we definitely do a lot of due diligence on these things. But it I don't think that if I was partnered with many other people in the world that they would just allow us to take the risks that we take on different opportunities and just be like okay didn't mm-hmm. work out all right Bruce that didn't work out <laughs> yeah well it sounds like you you feel like you've got a pretty good ability to to sort of calculate and intuit the risk associated with these projects and know, you know, what your potential return is and what your potential downside is. And, you know, if, if you, if you roll snake eyes, it's, you know, you're okay with that, right? You, you, you feel like you've made good decisions otherwise. Right. Yeah. And where do you see, I mean, I guess you, you were mentioning before some of the, the equity components. I mean, I, I'm kind of curious, given your knowledge kind of, of, the, the markets and what it takes to run these businesses and how the licenses are done. I mean, what programs have you seen or what, what do you think really needs to get done in terms of these programs in terms of, you know, not only issuing licenses, but, you know, really supporting these businesses so we can have, you know, successful businesses at the end of the day that are, you know, run by, represented by, a, you know, a diverse audience, diverse owner base. What do you see working? What do you see not working in the industry right now? Absolutely. Good question. I think that one thing that was very blatant in California when you kind of looked under the hood of the transition into Prop 64 was the extinction of small businesses. Mm-hmm. So that was very obvious that a lot of the legacy operators depending upon whatever jurisdiction or locality that they were in, either they did not want to become legal because of the taxes. And you're, yeah, you're, exactly. you're going from making money to not making money, which is a yeah. very valid point. Mm-hmm. Um, or you are just are in an area that doesn't permit. Whatever the case may be, that you were a small business and you were unable to stay in the industry that you know and love, which is really unfortunate. I kind of think of it like hackers. We value hackers, even though they're coming from something that's probably not, mm-hmm. you know, the most legal, but they have a lot of specialized experience. And people didn't really think that way about cannabis. Like they didn't see the value in the legacy operators. No. Um, they didn't see the value in the small businesses. It just kind of became so policy laden and the regulatory hoops that you had to jump through and going through planning and fire and electrical and all those things take so much time and like you've never had to do those things before in a lot of cases right so yeah it was a it was a struggle without really any education or any like it would have been great if they could have phased in this approach 
for, you know, hey, what are the things that these operators or small businesses will need? Well, they will need real estate. Okay, let's work with groups to make sure they can secure real estate when we know real estate in San Francisco is extremely expensive and cannabis real estate especially is extremely expensive. So just the basics, you know, we, we basically created an oxymoron. We're like, we want to give back all of this cannabis money to fight the war on drugs and we want to offer cannabis businesses to those that have been impacted by the war on drugs but we're not going to give them any money (laughs) so we're like okay so how does this work you know like i kind of joke that they in san francisco or just in the bay area the way that it's well actually la is another extreme example of this but they gave this facade to a lot of the verified equity applicants where they made them think that this piece of paper this verification was going to allow them to access capital or allow them to access real estate and it was not at all in that in that order and i kind of joked that i'm like yeah the piece of paper is like a golden ticket but when you walk to the front door they want you to have a silver dollar You know, it's like, it, it. yeah, like the, the, the two things you think in that they would create a lot of wraparound services, I guess would be the way to put it to make yeah. sure that these people can actually open up a small business. But the reality of it is the wraparound services were years and years behind. So now we're finally seeing a little bit more help to get through these legs. But the reality of the situation would be that in San Francisco, we made it a lot more predatory than, let's say, Oakland in some ways, because in Oakland, it was one equity license got approved, one normal license got approved. One equity, one normal. So they did a one-to-one. In San Francisco, they said, we're only going to allow equity to open. So we got equity applicants are the only ones that are going to be allowed to open, Yeah. but they have no money. So what does that mean? There are going to be a lot of predatory contracts, a lot of predatory opportunities. You've got people that traditionally probably don't come for much money. So if they're offered, you know, X, Y, and Z sums of money, will they just allow, you know, this large group to come in and operate on their license, you know, from Canada or from the East Coast or who cares? It doesn't matter. They're, They're just very, very ripe for corruption in a lot of ways that wasn't really like the intent of what we set out to do in the licensing so it's very very interesting now like we first had a rule where you couldn't sell your equity license for 10 years and mayor london breed about a week ago announced that she was changing that to five years and like i'm a really really neutral thinker i try to be (laughs) (laughs) that sounds funny (laughs) um but and so i'm like looking like the the negative of the 10-year scenario was mind-blowing to me because i'm like well now you're tying up this person's Whatever value yeah, this exactly. business comes, it's tied up for ten years. Yeah, they can't get out, right? And no business in the entire United States of America that I know of says, "Yeah, you can start this business, build this business, create a lot of business, and not be able to sell it for ten yeah. years." So it kind of pigeonholed people in a way. But the five years, it definitely accelerates the opposite of that which is also negative saying well i thought the intent was generational wealth or i thought the intent was making sure these people could stay in this business that they've been in or that they want to be in but if it's only a five-year play now then what are we really doing bruce like Mm -hmm. you know it's all it's a lot of I, i explain this industry as like 
a microcosm of a rapid, rapid microcosm of like what goes on on a large scale in other industries in America. But what happened in cannabis is it's, it's happening so fast that you're seeing um, just the end of a lot of small businesses. You're seeing monopolized efforts of really corporatized yeah. groups that are essentially like your Monsanto. If you think that they care any more about growing high quality cannabis than the average thing on a Walmart meat shelf, you're uh-huh. insane, you know? Yeah. And if you think about America just in our current stance about like, well, it's safer weed, it's lab tested. If you if you once again if you walk into Walmart today and you grab every vitamin C off the shelf, please test them and let me know what's in them. Because I guarantee you, they all will test for different things. So you fast that forward into this industry and you see a lot of problems when it comes to just sustaining any small businesses or what have you. So yeah, it's definitely been interesting to see this extreme transition into like the, I mean, as you see, like, Comparable to the wine industry in some ways or like the craft brewery industry in some ways where like the micro business license in California, you can distribute, you can cultivate and you can Mm -hmm. retail in certain capacities and you can manufacture in certain capacities depending upon how you want to do it. So there's definitely like, you know, we have that opportunity to kind of see if this will evolve where there are a good amount of small businesses, I would say, in craft beer. Um, Mm -hmm. But from what I can tell and the nature of, you know, we have a lot of states that are going online that want to make this very similar to the liquor industry and collect taxes from very few people, which, Mm -hmm. of course, is going to give very limited exposure to participation, especially for people that are not coming from multi-state operators and extremely capitalized and like heaven forbid we have some small businesses in cannabis that would be crazy um so yeah i just think that the the corporatizing has happened so fast you know it has and if you look around to the average business in america you know it's still very white men laden but if you look in cannabis it's like um man like yeah. you know it's it's there's no secret you know everybody and everybody knows that you know minorities are very underrepresented in cannabis yet yeah. people have they refuse to expunge nationally records or they, i mean it you know yeah, we live exactly. we live in a state that's very very racist obviously but the institutional mm-hmm. like social justice that or anti-social justice, I should say, that's kind of created through these structures are very, very, very obvious in current day, modern day cannabis. So it's a little daunting to like be in an industry that is so not even like not even controversial, but just so blatantly backwards Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. So, yeah, yeah, it's been one of the fascinating things for me just to kind of um, see how the you know, the, the sort of the business side, the cultural side, the medical side, like it, it is a confluence of a whole bunch of issues that, you know, really kind of shaping cannabis and driving cannabis and, and make the problems, you know, just that much more complicated in terms of how do, how do I really solve this? But you've, you've got to really address it at multiple levels, you know, business and culture and political. Definitely. And, and yeah. I think in cannabis, we could 
see that the political landscape was really not in touch with the cultural landscape and the cultural landscape might have been in touch more with the operational landscape of what it actually physically takes to get product, package product, you know, label that product, what that means is very obvious, at least for us in California, that those that wrote the rules didn't actually understand the logistics of cannabis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maria, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, the work that you do, uh, the businesses, what's the best way to get that information? Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me on, Bruce. It, um, yeah. Our website is www.mdnumbersinc.com. And our Instagram, we have MD Numbers Inc. Instagram as well as md.farms.ca. And you can check out the farm on there. Great. I'll make sure that those links and handles and everything are in the show notes so people can get that. Maria, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Absolutely, Bruce. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.